the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Ian Bremmer worked really hard as a kid with the help and encouragement of his single mom. His uh, dad died when he was four. And he rose up from the projects and earned a college scholarship, then eventually earned a Ph.D. in political science. He was the youngest ever national fellow at the Hoover Institution. In 1998, he he took an idea and built it into a company. He had $25,000, and he started the Eurasia Group. And it's a, um, a, a leading geopolitical risk research and consulting firm. He's still the president of that firm today. Uh, now that $25,000 investment of his and the idea has offices in New York, Washington, London, Tokyo, Sao Paulo, and San Francisco, as well as a network of experts and resources in 90 different countries. Larry Sanders said geopolitical economy has no sharper or more prescient analysis uh, than Ian Bremmer. Ian, welcome to the program. Good to be back with you, Glenn. Thanks for having me. You bet. So um, you've just written a new book, and we talked about it last time you were on, uh, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Uh, and it's, it's pretty fascinating. You, can you give us, the, give us the premise of it? Well, the premise of it, I'm glad you kind of introduced my background a bit, because, you know, um, I'm not raised to be a globalist. Uh, no one in the projects where I grew up was. Um, you know, everyone just wanted an opportunity to have a job and maybe do a little better for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got out, um, I certainly, you know, sort of believed uh, that all, all of the things that the elites uh, in the United States were saying, uh, that we wanted free markets, that we wanted open borders, that we should make the world safe for democracy and send our troops all over the world, especially when we defeated the Soviets that way, right? And, uh, and the technology would sort of, you know, help everybody as a consequence, too. And, you know, looking here in 2018, we realized that while that's worked really well for the globalists, uh, there are a lot of Americans and growing every day, as well as a lot of Europeans and growing every day, who really feel like that ideology has failed them. Um, and that's true whether you're talking about the Democrats or Republicans, whether you're talking mm-hmm. about the political leaders, the business leaders, the establishment media, or the professors. And I think that's why you got Trump. It's why you got Brexit. It's why Macron, uh, his calls for stronger Europe and for U.S. multilateralism are falling on deaf ears. Uh, and I, I it's like going to get worse. I, I like the fact that you point out in your book that it's it's not only Trump, but it's why you get Bernie Sanders. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my my mother, if she were alive today, would have voted for Trump or would have voted for Sanders if he'd been the candidate. There's no way she would have voted for yet another member of the establishment that she believed was lying to her and not caring about her. So the only way her family was going to make it is if she did something because she wasn't going to trust those Washington folks. Now, she used to read the National Enquirer every week. She brought it home, early fake news, as it were. But there was a more fundamental truth that spoke to her because she thought that all the fancy facts that were being pushed at her, they might have been right, they might have had science behind them, but they were pushed by people promoting their own agenda and, and not caring about her, um, you so, know, whether it's building infrastructure and education or health care or whatever. So, Ian, I, 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 when people say globalist, you know, you're a globalist, um, I, I, I'm not sure people are defining it in the same way. For, for instance, I don't have a problem with global business. I don't have a, I want free trade. I want all of these things. 
But here's what has happened is we have buried our own uh, um, uniqueness in a way. I think, you know, by 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 the European Union being trade partners, that's good. But by being a single block and saying, hey, Italians, you're no different than the Swiss and, and the Swiss. You're no different than the English. People do recognize that our countries are, are a little different and it's not nationalism. It's just um, uh, a, a pride of who you are and where you grew up. Does that make sense? Of course it does. And, and the Americans historically have done a much better job of integrating people from different cultures all over the world when they come in than the Europeans do. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Germany, which has a, an economy doing very well right now, and the working class in Germany feels like they have a social contract that takes care of them, a safety net. But Merkel got destroyed in her elections on the back of saying, we're going to take in a million Syrian refugees. Right. And Berlusconi got destroyed in Italy. His party lost to the Northern League, and that's in the part of Italy that's making all the money. It's not the South because they promised that they were going to deport 600,000 Libyans that had been allowed in as migrants over the past years. So, so what is the problem with globalism and and how do we how do we how do we not retreat into um into protectionism uh and this nonsense that jobs are coming back because jobs are m- being lost to high tech more than they are to China. Um how do we how do we thread this needle, if you will? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that this is not a problem of free trade per se. And free trade, we know, leads to a lot more growth and opportunities for the global economy and for the United States than protectionism would. And yet the average American is not going to support free trade and shouldn't if it means that no one is going to take that money and invest in their communities, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the solutions are fairly obvious. I mean, you know, Trump talks about infrastructure week, which has become almost the punchline of a joke, right, uh, after a year and a half, um, while every day he's talking about building the wall. It should be the other way around. You should be talking every day about infrastructure and building the wall. You can talk about when you campaign and then you kind of let it go, right? I mean, it's, are you going to fix the schools? Are you going to give people, especially the early K-4 through education, as opposed to being at the bottom of the league tables with the OECD as the Americans now are? And, and there are solutions that are being developed at the local level. I see in Baltimore that Johns Hopkins is teaming up with a bunch of corporate CEOs to try to bridge town and gown and really make a difference for the people that otherwise just look at the university as, you know, sort of something untouchable behind a wall. And then other other cities are starting to pick that up. I see some CEOs doing universal training that they're paying for, like Randall Stevenson from AT&T. Um, but these are small-scale experiments. There's nothing happening at the national level. The Democrats, are all they're doing is tearing down Trump every day and talking about impeachment, but they're not actually credible in telling the people that feel left behind that they're going to do any better than Trump is for them. And I think that's true across Europe, too. Interesting, so, uh, Ian, interesting timing with your book this week because uh, we talked to Jonah Goldberg, whose book also came out this week, and you guys really hit on a lot of similar themes. One of the points that that we talked to him about, and I think you, you talk about as well, 
is that sort of the natural state of people is to go into these sort of tribal uh, worlds and that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we autumn, we sort of, our human instinct is to look at these things and not be able to necessarily see the big picture where when you're talking about how, for example, free trade makes the world a better place. But if you're not getting anything out of it and you feel sort of uh, disassociated by that, it's a real problem. Is there a way to communicate to people, you know, hey, these things are generally speaking a good thing, but we need to handle them better and we need to make sure that our leaders are getting the money to the right places? Yeah, they, they have to feel like they're being taken care of. One big piece that no one seems to talk about in globalization is the United States sending troops all over the world for failed wars. And, you know, this is exactly the same group that voted for Sanders and voted for Trump. There's no way you were going to vote for Hillary or Jeb Bush if, you know, sort of you are an enlisted man or woman or married to one or extended family of one that came back in pieces with a a veterans administration that didn't take care of Mm -hmm. you. We've got 17 years of Afghanistan now. It's the longest war we've ever fought in our entire history. And the foreign policy establishment can give you all sorts of good reasons. I can give you good reasons why, you know, we need to keep the Russians down and geostrategic reasons. But, for, you know, if, if you're one of the people that's been sent into that war, that, that's meant nothing to you because you're not being taken care of. Because you're not yes. considered a hero when you come back. And, you know, mm-hmm. Trump has, give Trump credit, he's the one guy talking about bringing those 2,000 American troops in Syria home. He hasn't done mm-hmm. it yet. But at least he's talking about it. And so I think this is so much deeper than just we need to give these people a check, especially because the economy right now is doing incredibly well, right? Better, better than we've seen at any point since the financial crisis. And yet you still have this anger. So it clearly is deeper than just let me give you a little bit back from your taxes. Let me give you a Christmas time bonus. Well, you know, I, 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 let me go back to what you said about the wall. I think the wall is a symptom of of people being tired of being lied to by the press, by, you know, the administrations, uh, by Congress. What people really want is or what they what. Uh, let me say this. I think what they fear or feel is not, uh, you know, as the press would say, otherness. Uh, what they fear is that people are coming in here. We don't know who they are. Uh, Some of them uh, have caused real problems. Others are just, you know, hardworking families. But you don't know which is which. And most importantly, we're trapping people in a secondary culture. There's a there's a subculture here uh, of America. What made America really, truly great was people would come in and they would assimilate but now the assimilation is over, and in fact, all we're celebrating now is our differences while denigrating the American culture, the traditional American culture. And I think people say, you know, I don't believe anybody in Congress anymore that you're going to actually have comprehensive immigration reform that is good. You're not going to pay attention to the border. This border wall is permanent, and so I don't have to listen to you clowns anymore. I think that's what's happening. And the more that the press and the the ruling class dismisses the voice and the feelings of the people, the more they're going to they're going to say, you know, you're in trouble. And I want this, which is it it just becomes more and more extreme as you go down the road. If you want integration 
of immigrants, you need common values in a country. You need civic nationalism that works. Yes. You had mentioned, Glenn, that um, you know uh, that automation and technology is taking away far more jobs now than globalization uh, has. And you're right about that, manufacturing jobs, clearly. But the other piece of technology, of course, is that in the West, technology right now is ripping apart civic nationalism. We're getting our information from advertising companies that treat us not as citizens of a collective, a nation, but instead as consumers. And they need to divide us so that we can be more clear demographics to be advertised to. I mean, Everything in society today in the United States and in Europe is moving us farther apart from common and shared values. Trump is taking advantage of that more than anyone out there because he is the ultimate us versus them politician. He's the one that's able to really say you're winners or you're losers. You're with us or against us. And America first, everyone else second. That's the way it should be. But when when that's what people identify with, then clearly you're not going to have any support for large numbers of immigrants coming in precisely because the mechanisms to integrate will go away. My grandmother came to Ellis Island from Aleppo, Syria. She was an Armenian and Syrian Christian. And uh, that's, a, I mean, for me, when I grew up, I, that's what I thought America was all about. I, I yeah. wanted to bring in all of these diverse people because it was going to, that cultural diversity would lead to diversity of ideas, entrepreneurship, and what truly made America great. But people don't feel that anymore. And the trends in our society are moving in the other direction. Okay, so Ian Bremmer is uh, with us. He, he is the author of the book Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. It's available uh, this week everywhere uh, the books are found. We're talking to Ian Bremmer. He has written a, uh, a great book about the failure of globalism, Us Versus Them. Uh, when we come back, I, I, I want to get into some solutions, but I also... Uh, he he talks a lot about AI in the book and the coming technology uh, technological revolution. And uh, when you want to talk about us versus them, there there is a time coming when politicians will do what all politicians do, and when they can when they have to stop blaming China for the loss of jobs, they're going to have to turn to somebody else, and that's going to be high tech. That's going to be the makers of AI. How do we weather that and? When will the average person begin to really feel the impact of AI? And what does it mean for stability in the country and stability in the rest of the world? Ian Bremmer, author of the book Us Versus Them, The Failure of uh, Globalism, is uh, with us. And uh, Ian, let me, let me take you to uh, what you write about uh, with AI and the rise of, of AI. You see, as I do, great disruption. Um, I see um, the human story uh, as being, you know, corrupt politicians and uh, and the use of fear to drive us into really dark places or the opportunity to really expand and be great. Can you tell me when AI, you think, is going to really begin to impact people in a way that they see well we know i mean it's already uh, affecting us greatly uh in terms of uh big data and being able to use voice and facial recognition to more effectively sort people mm -hmm. that 
facilitates more consumption. But in China, for example, it means that you don't see uh, demonstrations in Xinjiang anymore, northwest China, because they uh, have the ability uh, from satellite um, to uh, to identify, you know, sort of every citizen and where they are and when there's a problem, and so no more violence, right? Um, that's mm. kind of 1984-ish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and look, I, I think that AI um, going forward over the next for sort of 10 years, in the United States, in the 48, the lower 48, a driving, being a t- trucker or a car driver, is the, is the single or second most popular job um, in every single one of those states. And within 10 years, those jobs are going to be go away, right? And every CEO I talk to in the United States, literally everyone, they can be in pharma, they can be in broad manufacturing, they can be in high-tech, you name it. They're all telling, banking, uh, lawyers, accountants, they're all telling me about how they can make more money with fewer people going forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's in a great economy. That's not when a recession hits and suddenly they have to actually dig deep into their costs and suddenly lay off a bunch of people. Um, AI may well develop a lot of new jobs and new fields, but we know that the people that are being displaced right now do not have the skills to enter any of those jobs. And there's no plans to train them. And in the United States, at least we're rich. So, I mean, if you're working class and you suddenly don't have a job or you have to be part-time, you're not going to starve. You're not going to set yourself on fire like they did in Tunisia. But in emerging markets who have benefited, their middle classes have benefited the most from globalization because they had cheap labor. Well, their labor is more expensive now. Now that the computers are coming, what's going to happen to them? What happens to all of those countries and their middle classes? That's when this becomes not an issue we need to talk about, but suddenly a real crisis. And well, I, I'm... I, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I, I'm, I'm concerned, however, we have a very low uh, threshold for pain uh you know we we're not going to starve to death but we also expect an awful lot um i i don't think people are really thinking through what uh ai is going to mean uh so there and nobody's really teaching them and so it's going to come as a surprise you know people right now politicians are saying i'm going to bring your jobs back no they're not that's a lie that's a lie the jobs are not coming back and we don't have a willingness, and I, I want to say this carefully because it's a conservative audience, and, and you need to understand that we have to explore seriously all options because the world is changing, but a lot of people are not willing to look at universal basic income, which I'm not for, I don't think will work, but something is going to have to be done because we're going to look at 30% unemployment. That's according to Bain Capital by 2030. Yep. That's, I, not, that's not a workable uh, uh, society. I don't like universal basic income either. I think it's an, it's an easy you know, sort of uh, ideological fix that yes. you know, sort of obviates the requirements of governments to actually ensure that people matter. Yeah, um, well, Finland, Finland just... It, Finland has been experimenting for two years, and Finland just dropped their experiments and it, it failed. So that's right. And and yeah. Switzerland was going had a big vote for it last year, voted against it. Um, but you know, I think there are other ways uh, to get at this issue. But we need to recognize that the country that's doing the most to address this right now is actually China. 
where they have more industrial robots than any other country in the world. They're leading the world mm-hmm. in, in producing them. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're leading the world as a government in ensuring the continued employment of inefficient labor. You remember, so remember how do you do, so how do you do Ian how do you, how do you do that without fundamentally um, changing your constitution into something along the lines of the former Soviet Union or China where everybody's guaranteed a job that that's fundamentally against the American nature the New Deal uh, on the back of the Great Depression. Uh, had all sorts of incredible public works projects through the government for average Americans. That wasn't anti-American. That's what you do when otherwise, you know, on the back of the Gilded Age, when structural inequality in the U.S. grew way out of whack and the average person didn't have anything. That's when we put Social Security in place. That's when we suddenly gave people pensions. Um, you know, I mean, but so none of those was done. But none of those are workable. None of those are workable solutions because the math doesn't work. You know, the math, I mean, that's why we're you know, one of the reasons why we're, you know, so we're the biggest debtor in the world um, well, is because we, we wanted the, the great society. We are the biggest debtor in the world, but um, we also have the greatest assets. And I, I don't understand people that only focus on deficit spending when we don't look at the other side of the, of the balance sheet. When you talk about a corporation, you'd never talk about debt by itself if you were going to invest in their stock or not. There's a reason why the dollar remains the global reserve currency. We're about to pass Saudi Arabia as the world's leading oil producer later this year. We're the world's leading food producer. We're exporting to the Chinese. They're importing from from us. We've got the world's largest military. We have the best universities in the world. Our ability to spend, if we want to, on making us have the best you know, early school training uh, and have digital training follow people through their lifetimes, we could do that if we wanted to. It's not a priority. And it's not a priority because I think that the average person can take more pain in the United States. It's just not that urgent. We're not demonstrating. So, so, but here's a here's a problem with that, Ian. Is um, the government has proven itself to be wildly inefficient in a lot yes. of those uh, in in those categories. And okay. if you go to Washington, and I know I know you know this, I talk to people in Washington uh, about high tech and the future. They are so out of touch uh, with. I mean, it is it's it's like talking to a you know the, somebody in the Bell system. You know about uh, about the internet. They don't. They just don't even understand it yet. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you, there's no question uh, that if we're going to have efficient solutions that are going to work, they're going to start at least uh, in the private sector, and they're going to start in state governments and in city governments. They're not going to start with Washington. But you were asking me what the solutions were, and you said we can't pay for solutions. I don't think that's true. I think we absolutely can, and I think you can do public-private partnerships, too. I think there's lots of ways that the U.S. government doesn't have to take over programs but could help fund them, could help provide, you know, sort of in the same way that we do X prizes um, to try to create private sector competition, and that DARPA, which is part of the U.S. government, got driverless cars moving by funding competitions that the private right. sector and universities have gotten into. Why, why yes. can't our government fund competitions to fix this with big money? We could do that. We're not doing it. Yeah. So I, so I, agree, I agree with that. I just think this requ- is going to require vastly different thinking 
at the political level uh, than than anybody that I've uh, that I've seen uh, that wants to run because they're all still feeding a machine uh, that is, you know, that that is really I mean, is is big state looks like, uh, you know, the 1950s uh, and it's going to move faster than that. It's going to be different than that. And we just need some innovative thinking. When you say we can't we can't afford it. I agree with you that our assets are great. What concerns me is we're spending money on crazy, stupid stuff, wildly inefficiently. And the people in Washington, they're, they're, it's not like they're running a business. It's, it's, they're running a campaign all the time. And so there's, there's nobody at the helm, it seems. But the, the swamp is not being drained. And electing Donald Trump did nothing to drain the swamp. Electing Barack Obama did nothing to drain the swamp. And those structural challenges for the U.S. government are the reasons why, in the near term, what we're going to see is a lot more walls. Because if you can't address this, if you refuse to address this by actually helping the people, then the political response, mm-hmm. the successful mm-hmm. political response is, I'm going to create us versus them. I'm going to show yes. you, yes. Gonna give you yes. the nationalism. It worked in Israel against the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. No one talks about a two-state solution anymore. It's great as long as you're on the right side of the wall. And I fear that that's the quote-unquote solution that we are increasingly embracing mm-hmm. in the U.S. because no one is swamp training. Ian Bremmer, uh, author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Thank you so much, Ian. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network.